Well, good morning, High Point. Good to be back with you again. I want to thank you for all the cards and the kind words and the well wishes that were sent our way from the passing of my mother. I want to thank the church board. allowed me to get out of town and take all the time that we needed to tend to the funeral arrangements and all the other things that occur when someone passes away. Uh, I want to thank Pastor Chris, Pastor Anthony for filling in for me while I was gone. Grateful. We are so grateful for our church family and we're thankful to be back here with you again. This morning, uh, we're going to pick back up on our series from the book of John. And this morning's text is perhaps the most popular verse in all the Bible. Uh, it's a, become a favorite scripture to countless, of peop, countless numbers of people throughout the world. In fact, there is hardly a place in the world where the gospel message has been preached that this verse has not become instantly known and loved and memorized by those who hear it. This is a text that is inscribed in many books. It is, it is uh, reflected in many songs, and it really is a summation of the gospel message of Jesus Christ. I'm referring to John 3.16. Uh, the words are on the screen behind me. You can follow along with me. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. The reason I had to look at my notes is I memorized it in a different translation and I wanted to be sure that I got it right in the NIV. This is a verse that so many people have, have committed to memory and they've cherished it. It's cherished by multitudes of Christians all over the world. And I believe the reason that John 3.16 is such a beloved scripture to so many people is very simple. It's because in these precious words, Jesus tells us, tells what sinners like you and me need to hear most and want to hear most. In these 26 words, our Lord is sharing with us the, the comforting and reassuring truth that our sin does not prevent God from loving us. And I think that the reason we love this verse and we cling to it so much is as fallen beings, we need to know that our creator, we need to know that our God, that we have rebelled against, hasn't changed at all how he feels about us, that he loves us and that he wants us back. As I was thinking about all of this, parenting came to mind. If you are a parent, you know that there are times that you have to correct your children when they're disobedient. Sometimes we've had to correct our children, not just to disobedience because of their rotten attitude towards their disobedience. Some parents correct with words and some parents correct with consequences. But whatever form you choose, you understand that correction usually brings about the humbling of a child when they realize that they have done wrong. Now, I've got to say that Lisa and I have been greatly blessed in the raising of our daughter, Brooke, because the truth is she's been a pretty good kid throughout her entire life. She never was one who would try your patience or would uh, do wrong to see how far she could take you. And I know some kids do that. I'm thankful that she was never that way. But I do remember once when Brooke was in her terrible twos and she did something that required correction. And so I corrected her. I could see on her face that she realized she had done something wrong. And it was followed by truly repentant tears because she knew she had misbehaved. Immediately, she clung to me. And of course, I held her tight to reassure her that I still loved her, even in her correction from her disobedience. You know, it's interesting, after being corrected, Children want and need to know that they are still loved by you unconditionally. And so they'll often draw nearer to you after correction. My point is this. We're exactly the same. We all know when we've done something wrong. We know when we have disobeyed God, and we all have this inner longing to know that he still loves us. And as I said, I think that this is why this verse is so popular, because Jesus not only tells us that God loves us, but in addition, he has done something to make it possible for us to be together again. Of course, the main difference between my little example 
And the message that is found here in John 3.16 is that God sent Jesus to take the punishment that we all deserve for our disobedience, for our sin. Jesus came to take the sin of the world upon himself, and he did so because he loves us still. He still wants to be in a relationship with you. He still wants to hold you in his arms, like I did Brooke on that day. And that is wonderful news. It's the kind of news that that makes this the favorite verse of so many people, more so than most any other text. William Barclay writes this, God is not like an absolute monarch who treats each man as a subject to be reduced to an abject obedience. God is the father who cannot be happy until his wandering children come home. So with all that in mind this morning, I want to say four things about the love of God. I want to elaborate on four basic and yet profound truths about our Heavenly Father's feelings toward us that is found in this beloved verse. And the first one is simple. God's love is a great love, in case you haven't recognized that. I want you to think about this, the person in your life who you love the most. It could be your spouse, it could be your children, it could be your parents. Whoever that person is, when you think of that person, you realize that you would do anything for them. You love them no matter what. It's, it's kind of an indescribable kind of a love. Well, as great as your love is for that person or persons, you've got to understand that it doesn't compare to the great love that God has for you and me. And I think that we hear the greatness of his love in these first three words. God so loved. While I was in Arizona for my mother's funeral, and even on my drive back home, there were some pretty spectacular views spread out as you're driving from that that long distance away. And I don't know about you, but when I see the beauty, all of the beauty and the grandeur of this world, I realize it and often words will come out of my mouth like, thank you, Lord, for the beauty of your creation. Sometimes I get overwhelmed with it, particularly with the mountains. They just, they blow me away. They always have. I grew up in Michigan. We didn't have mountains. We had water, but we didn't have mountains. And I come out here and I see these majestic mountains and they literally blow me away. The greatness of God's creation is awe-inspiring. It really, really is. But likewise, so is his love. When sinners like me realize how great the love of God is, it can be overwhelming. It can be even hard to grasp. In fact, whenever I read one of my favorite scriptures, I picture the Apostle Paul feeling overwhelmed as he comprehends how great the love of God is. He writes this in Ephesians 3, 17 through 20. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all the Lord's holy people to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. And to know this love that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. It's almost as if Paul was taking a tour of all of God's attributes and when God's love comes into view, he says, I wish you guys could see this. I wish you could realize just how deep and how long and how high the love of Christ is for you personally. God's love is indeed great. I want you to listen to what A.W. Tozer wrote. He said, since God is self-existent, His love had no beginning. Because he is eternal, his love can have no end. Because he's infinite, it has no limit. Frederick Lehman was inspired to express the truth of what I just shared with you in his famous hymn titled, The Love of God is Greater Far. Do you remember these words? It's an old hymn, and I know many of you will know it. The love of God is greater far than tongue or pen can ever tell. It goes beyond the highest star and reaches to the lowest hell. The guilty pair bowed down with care. God gave his son to win. His erring child he reconciled and pardoned him from sin. 
O love of God, how rich and pure, how measureless and strong, it shall forevermore endure the saints and angels' song. I don't know if you realize it or not, but the final stanza in this famous hymn was not written by Lehman. Its words instead were found written on the wall in the room of an asylum. And it was written by a man who obviously took a lot of comfort in receiving the greatness of God's love. And this this lyric was not discovered until after this man's death. The people cleaned out his room. They saw that he had written Lehman's words on the wall, but he added a verse of his own, which is now a part of that song. And here's how it goes. Could we with ink the ocean fill and were the skies of parchment made, were every stalk on earth a quill and every man a scribe by trade? To write the love of God above would drain the ocean dry, nor could the scroll contain the whole, though stretched from sky to sky. Those are words from an individual who had a great understanding of the love of God and from an individual who no doubt relied upon that love every single day of his life. And do you know what the measure is that shows us just how great God's love actually is? It's the fact that it is great enough to love every single human being who has ever been born and every single human being ever yet to be born. I mean, God's love is so great that he doesn't just love the human race. He loves every single person within the human race. God loves you and me as individuals. He knows your name. He knows your needs. He understands your hurts. He understands your fears. Even though you are one among countless billions, God's love is so great that he loves you as if you were the only person walking the face of this earth. St. Augustine wrote, God loves each one of us as if there was only one of us to love. And Paul was obviously rejoicing in this fact when he wrote in Galatians 2.20, the second part of that verse, the life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. And as I've thought about all this, I think it was his understanding of the personal aspect of God's great love that led John, as we talked about a few weeks ago, to to refer to himself as the disciple Jesus loved. I mean, knowing that my great God loves me with his great love, well, that is truly a defining act and fact. Think about it. People often brag about being close to famous people, a great individual. It might be a movie star. It might be a famous athlete or a musician or a politician. Well, can I just say that as a Christian, I am close to God himself. I can say that the creator of the universe loves me. He loves me personally. And this is another reason why this verse is so popular. The fact that God himself loves us as individuals, it trumps all other kinds of love. And it also trumps any problems that this sin-fallen world throws in our direction. In Romans chapter eight, the apostle Paul lists a whole slew of bad things that comes our way. He talks about trouble, hardship, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, sword, death itself, demons, the past, the present, and the future. But then he follows it all up by saying, hey, in all of this, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. If God is for us, who can be against us? God's love is a great love, and he indeed so loves every single one of us. And that leads me to point out another facet of his tremendous love. God's love is an inclusive, unconditional love. Remember, Jesus said that God so loved the world, no exclusions, no limitations. God so loved literally everyone 
No conditions. I mean, John 3.16 doesn't say that God so loved the nation or God so loved just good people or that he so loved only people who loved him in return. It says God loved the world, the entire world. That means that God loves the unlovable. That means that God loves the unlovely. He loves the lonely who have no one else to love them. He loves the man who loves God, and he loves the man who doesn't even give God a second thought. He loves everyone, period. That wonderful word, whoever, in John 3.16 means exactly that. It tells us that God loves every single person in the world and he wants everyone to respond to his great love. And we see this in the fact that that word whoever was apparently one of Jesus' favorite words because he used it often. I'll give you a few examples. In Matthew 10, 32, he said, whoever acknowledges me before men, I will also acknowledge him before my heavenly father. In John 4, 14, he said, whoever drinks the water I give him will never thirst. John 6, 37, whoever comes to me, I will never drive away. John eleven twenty six. whoever lives by believing in me will never die. And in Revelation twenty two seventeen, 17, whoever desires, let him take the water of life freely. This reminds me of some words that John Newton wrote. He said, if I read, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, and when John Newton believed he should have everlasting life, I should say, perhaps there is some other John Newton. But whosoever means this John Newton and the other John Newton and everybody else, whatever their name may be. Newton is exactly right. God does indeed love everyone unconditionally. And this is wonderful news. This is very wonderful news because as sinners, none of us really deserve to be loved by a holy God. I mean, the truth be told, none of us are completely lovable. Oh, you may be close, but you're not completely lovable. All of us, all of us rebel against God. Often, we engage in thoughts and behaviors that disappoint our Heavenly Father. But that doesn't stop him from loving you. Yes, he hates our sin, but he loves us still. Romans 5.8 says, but God demonstrates his, his own love for us in this. While we were sinners, Christ died for us. And this is not a new thing for God. He's always loved sinful humanity. It was Moses who said to the Hebrews in Deuteronomy 7, 7, he said, the Lord did not set his affection on you and choose you because you were more numerous than the other peoples, for you were fewest of all peoples. In other words, he's saying to them, God wasn't attracted to you and didn't choose you because you were big or because you were important by any stretch of the imagination. The fact is there was really nothing to you. I did this out of my great love for you. I did this to make good on the promise that I made to your ancestors. So please understand, God's love does not have conditions attached to it. You and I don't have to do anything to receive his love. It comes freely. I read about a survey that was done at the Fuller Theological Seminary School of Intercultural Studies. It was a survey that questioned 750 Muslims who had converted to Christianity. They wanted to find out what had attracted them to the Christian faith. And one of the top reasons that was cited was this precious, precious Christian teaching that God loves all people unconditionally. And that idea should attract you and I just like it does a Muslim. Isn't it wonderful to know that God loves all people, even the unlovely ones like you and me? Isn't it assuring to know that our sin does not negate God's love? Isn't it reassuring to know that our flaws and our handicaps and our hurts and our hangups cannot negate God's great love either? 
I want to try to read you a letter from a father to his daughter. It's a tough one. It's taken from Dr. James Dobson's book, When God Doesn't Make Sense. And it underscores this unconditional, all-inclusive kind of a love from a father to his child. He says, my dear Bristol, before you were born, I prayed for you. In my heart, I knew you would be a little angel, and so you were. When you were born on my birthday, April 7th, it was evident that you were a special gift from the Lord. But how profound a gift you turned out to be. More than the gurgles and rosy cheeks, more than the firstborn of my flesh, a joy unspeakable. You showed me God's love more than anything else in all creation. Bristol, you taught me how to love. I certainly loved you when you were cuddly and cute, when you jabbered your first words. I loved you when the searing pain of realization took hold that something was wrong, that maybe you weren't developing as quickly as your peers, and even when we understood it was more serious than that. I loved you when we went from hospital to clinic to doctor looking for a medical diagnosis that would help bring us some hope. And of course, we always prayed for you. We prayed and prayed. I loved you when you moaned and cried. Your mom and I and your sisters would drive for hours late at night to help you fall asleep. I loved you when you were confused, when with tears in your eyes you would bite your fingers or your lip by accident. I loved you when your eyes crossed and then when you went blind. I most certainly loved you when you could no longer speak, but how profoundly I missed your voice. I loved you when scoliosis began to wrench your body like a pretzel, and when we put a tube in your stomach so you could eat. We fed you one spoonful at a time, even up to two hours per meal. I managed to love you when your contorted limbs made changing 10 years of diapers difficult. Bristol, I even loved you when you could not say the one thing in life that I longed to hear back. Daddy, I love you. Bristol, I loved you when I was close to God and when he seemed far away. When I was full of faith and also when I was angry at him. And the reason I loved you, my Bristol, in spite of these difficulties, is that God put this caliber of love in my heart. This is the wondrous nature of God's love. He loves us when we are blind or deaf or twisted in body or in spirit. God loves us even when we can't tell him that we love him back. My dear Bristol, now you are free. I look forward to that day when according to God's promises, we will be joined together, completely whole and full of joy. I am so happy that you have your crown first. We will follow you someday in his time. Before you were born, I prayed for you. In my heart, I knew you would be a little angel. And so you were. Love, Daddy. Those are some pretty powerful words from a loving father to his handicapped daughter. And you can just sense the depth of the love that he had for that child. It didn't matter whether she could express her love back to him physically. It didn't even matter that she didn't understand the difficulties she was facing. It didn't, it didn't matter that, that, that she could not respond in the way that her dad wanted her to. It didn't matter how much extra time and effort went into to taking care of her needs in the time that this child lived. She was loved unconditionally. She was loved inclusively. It was clearly a powerful love. But as I said earlier, the love that this father had for this child and expresses in this letter is minuscule. It, it is Bush League love compared to the kind of love that God has for you and I. I'm not sure we often believe that. I'm not even sure that we understand it. But it is true. And if you leave here today remembering anything, don't you ever doubt the love that God has for you. It doesn't matter what you're doing. It doesn't matter where you're at in your Christian walk. You may not even be in a Christian walk right now. God loves you. So the love of our Heavenly Father is a great love. 
It is an inclusive, unconditional love. And number three, it is a love, God's love is a giving love. And when you think about it, giving is what love does. Giving is how love expresses itself. Giving is at the heart of love, and therefore, as John 3.16 reminds us, giving is at the heart of God. We see this going all the way back to the book of Genesis, where it tells us that God was so giving, that he was so generous, that he creates all the grandeur of his beauty, and he says, now take it, now live in it, now enjoy it, it's yours. I mean, God has been giving from the very beginning. James 1.17 says, every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of heavenly lights, who does not change like shifting shadows. And understand that God's love isn't just lavish. It isn't just creative. It is continual. It is ceaseless. It is unstoppable. Lamentations 3.23 says, your mercies are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. And at the start of every day, God says, hey, did you like that sunrise yesterday? Well, here's another one for you to look at. Here's food for your body to function. Here's air for your lungs to breathe. Here is beauty for your eyes to behold. Here is music for your ears to hear. Here is strength to go after your needs. Here are friends to help strengthen your heart. And here is a purpose for your day. All the time, God is giving and giving and giving. That's what he does all day long because he loves you so. But of course, God's greatest gift, the greatest expression of his love to you and I is when he gave us Jesus. God so loved the world. His love was so great, so inclusive, so unconditional, so giving that he gave his only son. In his commentary on John's gospel, James Montgomery Boyce writes this, this is hard, there is hardly a verse in the New Testament that speaks of God's love and that does not also speak in the immediate context and sometimes within a space of a few words of the cross. How do we know that God loves us? Because the world is beautiful? Not at all. We know that God loves us because he has given us his only begotten, his unique son. God's love is great. It is inclusive. It is unconditional. It's a giving kind of a love. But that leads me to say one more thing. Number four, God's love is a love that calls for a response. It calls for a response from you and I. God loves us such that he doesn't make us love him back. And that's what's so interesting about his love. As I said a minute ago, the very nature of God is love. It is his essence. 1 John 4, 16 and a host of other scriptures make very, very clear that God is love. And because of this aspect of God's nature, God values love above all other things. And that's why he created you and me, so that we could be in a loving relationship with him. But this kind of relationship is only possible because we were made in such a way that we are capable of loving God of our own free will. Philip Yancey says that our creator desires not the clinging, helpless love of a child who has no choice, but the mature, freely given love of an adult. So God lets us choose how we are going to respond to his love. We get to decide whether or not 
we are going to love him back. Whether or not we are going to put our trust and our faith and our hope in him and in his plan to save us from our sin. Reminds me of those love notes we used to send in grade school. At least we did in my generation. You'd write one of those love notes to a little girl that you liked. And you'd give it to one of her best friends. And you'd have her deliver it for you. And it would say, I like you. Do you like me? We were too coward to say, I love you. Do you love me? And then you left two boxes that she could check. Yes or no. You remember those days, right? I don't think kids do that today. That's how we did it when I was in grade school. You sent a note, man. That's how you did it. And you awaited their response. And when she didn't respond at all, it just killed you. I mean, you were just crushed. God wrote the Bible as a love letter to you and me. And he awaits for our response. And that response, unlike one from grade school, has eternal significance. I mean, that in the end, some are going to perish while others are going to live eternally in God's presence. And the thing that determines that has absolutely nothing to do with our gifts or our talents. It's not about our pedigree. It's not about the possessions that we own. He's not impressed with any of that. The difference is determined by our belief. Our response to this great, unconditional, and giving love of God. Missionary Bible translators in the New Hebrides Islands struggled to find an appropriate verb in that native tongue to describe the word believe. It was a serious problem because we all understand that that word and that concept is essential to the gospel message of Jesus Christ. One of the translators, John G. Patton, accidentally came across a solution while hunting with one of the tribesmen. The two men bagged a large deer and they carried it on a pole on a mountain path down to Patton's home. When they reached the veranda, both men dropped the load and they plopped down into the porch chairs. And as they did this, the native exclaimed in the language of his people, my, it is good to stretch yourself out here and rest. Patton immediately reached for a pad of paper and a pencil and he recorded that phrase. And as a result, the final translation of John 3.16 in that language is worded like this. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever stretcheth himself out on him should not perish, but have everlasting life. That's really what belief is. It's responding to God's love by saying, I am a sinner, I am lost, and I am incapable of saving myself. So I am deciding to respond to Jesus' death and his resurrection by believing in God's son who died for my sin. I'm stretching myself out on what Jesus has done and I'm resting in that. So what about you? Have you responded to God's great love? His unconditional, his accepting, his giving love? Have you put your faith yet in the Lord Jesus Christ? Have you believed that he is God's son and that he came to die for your sin? Have you asked him to forgive you and to become the Lord of your life? If you haven't, I encourage you to do so today because the Lord is waiting for your response. Scott, will you come forward, please? This morning, we're gonna take communion together. When you arrive, you should have picked up communion emblems out in the foyer. If you did not do that, you can excuse yourself and get up and run out and grab one really quick and come back and join us. I won't point out the fact that Sheena forgot hers. 
What's that? Oh, was that yours? Chris forgot his. I, come, I came up here one Sunday and forgot mine, so it's very easy. I didn't mean to call you out, Sheena. I just wanted to get a laugh. That was all. You know, communion is a time where those of us who have committed our lives to Christ Jesus remember what it was that he accomplished on the cross on our behalf. But it can also be a time for us to accept the results of what he accomplished on the cross personally if you have not done so. Of course, we refer to that as salvation. You see, as as I said earlier, Jesus took the punishment for our sin. What I mean by that is that he he paid the price. He paid the punishment. He paid the ultimate price, and he suffered an unbelievably painful and torturous death on the cross. And the blood that he shed, well, that, you guys, that is the cleansing agent that that washes away, that, that wipes away our sin. And that's the symbolism of communion. The juice that we drink represents the atoning blood, and the bread that we eat represents his broken body. He was the punishment for our transgressions. He paid the price for every sin, every disobedience you and I have ever committed or ever will. And all we need to do to accept his forgiveness is to acknowledge him as Lord, the only one who has the ability to wash our sin away. And we do this because though Christ did die on that cross, he rose again three days later with resurrection power, defeating Satan and death and the grave. And because of what he accomplished, those who accept his forgiveness and who receive salvation will likewise spend eternity in God's presence. When I was in Arizona, tending my mother's funeral and tending to her passing and all that went along with that, I was reminded of this truth in a very profound way. Yes, I am going to miss my mother. She was a great blessing to me. She was a great blessing to our family and to many others. But because of Jesus' love, I know where my mother is today. She's in God's presence. And I can find great joy and I can find great happiness in that. His promises are true, ladies and gentlemen. Don't ever doubt the promises written in the Word of God. And so because Jesus defeated death in the grave, we do too, and that's something we're celebrating. That's why he told us to remember. But not only should we remember, but this should also be a time of celebration. And that's what we do when we participate in communion together as a church family. But the Bible makes it very clear that when we do take communion, that we are never to do this in an unworthy way. We are never to do this casually, without any thought, without any preparation or purpose. I want to read to you 1 Corinthians 11, 27, 29. I read this every time we take communion. Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and the blood of the Lord. A man ought to examine himself before he eats of the bread and drinks of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without recognizing the body of the Lord eats and drinks judgment upon himself. According to this scripture, every one of us must examine ourselves in light of this sacred moment. Examining our hearts means to to lay our lives wide open before God and say, God, forgive me for anything in my life that is displeasing to you. Because I certainly don't want to be guilty of sinning against the body or the blood of the Lord. And so I always want to provide everyone an opportunity for us to make sure that that we're in a right standing with God before we take communion. So we're gonna have a moment of silence. All you're gonna hear is the music playing behind me, like right now in the background. And during this time, I want you to reach out to God in your own personal way, in your own words. Reach out to him. 
Pray for forgiveness. Pray for unconfessed sin in your life, for your heart to be ripe before God. And if you are here this morning or if you are watching online and you have never received Jesus' gift of salvation, you can do so at this moment. The Bible says in order to receive salvation, you must believe and you must confess. You must believe that Jesus is the only way to God the Father, that he came to this earth and he lived a sinless life, but he died a horrific death. And as I said, the blood that shed from his body atones, it covers for our sin. You need to confess that to him in prayer. Ask him to forgive you of your sins and you will become a new creation. The Bible says that he will cleanse you of all unrighteousness. He wipes your slate clean and you are given a fresh start. And when we do this, that allows us all collectively as a church family to participate in this communion time together knowing that we are doing so in a God-honoring way and in a worthy manner. So during this time, I want you to reach out to the Lord in your own way, and I want you to speak to him and seek him. Open your hearts and receive what the, only, the one thing that only he can offer you, forgiveness of sin and eternal life in his presence. Let's spend some time in prayer and reflection before God today before we share at the Lord's table together. Father, you've, you've heard our words, but even more importantly than that, you, you've read our hearts. Forgive us of our sin. Forgive us of our disobedience. Forgive us for the times where we put you way down on the priority list of life. Forgive us for the times where we've not defended you. the times when we did things that were not pleasing in your sight. Thank you for the atoning blood of Jesus that we can be forgiven of our shortcomings, of our sin. Like the song says that we sang today, I am accepted, I am received, I am forgiven. And we thank you for that. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you for what he accomplished on the cross. As we participate in communion together, we pray that you'll be greatly honored as we remember the gift that you've given us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. If you haven't uh, used these disposable communion emblems before, on the top is a cellophane tab that you can pull back which will expose the bread. And below that is an, a foil tab that you can pull back that will expose the juice. excited to say that starting next month, we're going to go back to the way we used to before COVID. On the night that Jesus was betrayed and arrested, 
He had his last supper with his disciples, and when he had given thanks, he broke the bread, and he said, this bread, it represents my body, which is to be broken for you. And he said, every time you do this, every time you participate in this communion together, I want you to be reminded of my bruised and battered body. And so as you partake of this bread this morning, I want you to be reminded of the body of Christ that was broken for you, that was beaten beyond recognition, and that by his stripes, you are healed. You may eat the bread. In the same way he took the cup, he said, this cup represents my blood, a new covenant. He said, whenever you drink of this, do so in remembrance of me. And so this morning, as you drink of the juice, I want you to be reminded of the precious blood that spilled from the body of our innocent, sinless Savior for the redemption of your sin and mind. It was his blood that brings atonement for our sin. You may drink of the juice. your heads with me in prayer please father we thank you for the blood of Jesus we thank you that it is the only thing that can wipe away our sin it's the only thing that can save us it's the only thing that allows us eternity in the presence of God and we thank you that you cared enough and loved us enough that you sent Jesus so that we had an opportunity to be reconciled with you What a precious gift it is. And Father, I just pray that you would impress upon us every moment of every day how great our God is, how loving and kind you are, that you gave us an opportunity to be reconciled. We do not take that for granted. We are thankful for that. Thank you for our Christian faith. Thank you for the forgiveness of sin. Thank you for your blessed spirit that inhabits us, strengthens us, guides us, directs us, empowers us to do the things that you need us to do as disciples of Christ on this earth. Fathers, we go our separate ways today. I pray that your spirit would guide and direct our steps, the places we go, the things that we do, the conversations that we have. Let those conversations be designed to build up 
and not tear down. Father, may that love that you lavish on us shine through so brightly to others that they would not be able to, to pass us without sensing your love and seeing it on display. And then when they come and say, what is it about you that's different? You open that door and you allow us to share your goodness with them. And of course, when we do that, Lord, we know that you always give us the words to say. Use us as instruments of your love, Father, I pray in Jesus' name. And Lord, as we, between now and the time we gather together again, I just ask that you would keep every one of us safe, keep us safe from COVID, from sickness, from disease. I, I ask that you would keep us safe from any accidents befalling us so that we can gather together again as a church family and we can worship you in spirit and in truth. I thank you for this day. I thank you for the beauty of your creation. I most especially thank you for your love. It is a love like none other. It is unconditional. It is giving, it is accepting, it is endless. Father, you love those who don't love you in return. And I guess if I have one prayer for us as we depart this place today, is that you, you would give us the kind of love that we need to have to love those who don't act like us, who don't believe like we believe, because that is at the very genesis of a relationship with them that can lead them to Jesus Christ. So Father, open us up to love like you love, with no conditions attached, that we can look past the surface and we can see down to the heart of a child of the living God who you love and we are commanded to love as well. Thank you for this day. Thank you for your power. Thank you for your spirit, not only that dwells within us, but that is so strong in this place weaving in and out of the aisles and touching hearts today. And Father, help us to be great ambassadors of your love this day and every day. We ask in Jesus' name, amen and amen. Thank you for being here today.